Welcome to Try Babies, the podcast where we're not afraid to be seen trying and crying. You're joined by Sunroom co-founders Michelle Battersby, that's me, and Lucy Mort. That's me. We helped build the world's largest dating apps, Bumble and Hinge, and now we're in the thick of building our own tech company, and we're bringing you along for the ride. Each week you'll hear from us as we fill you in on the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to business, career, relationships, and everything in between. We'll tackle your try or cry questions and share workplace tips that we've learned along the way, as well as interviewing inspiring business leaders. So get ready to go after what you want, be courageous, back yourself and build your dream career. This is Try Babies. Faye Keegan is the co-founder of Dipsy, a subscription app that sells audio erotica to women. Dipsy is like calm or headspace, only instead of helping you meditate, it gets you turned on. The app is built for millennials with sleek design and playful illustrations, and the stories are for everyone. Couples navigating long-term monogamy, people who are newly single, those working through sexual trauma. The New Yorker hailed Dipsy as the audio app that's transforming erotica. Today, we chat about Faye's journey through finance and fintech and what inspired her to leave it behind to start Dipsy. Cool. Welcome, Faye, to Try Babies. I'm so excited. Yeah. So really excited to get into your career, your journey, the story building, Dipsy, this incredible company that you have built for women. I would, like, you've had a fascinating, I think pretty fascinating journey. Like, you started your career at Bridgewater, which is the world's biggest hedge fund, and you've gone on to build an audio erotica platform for, for women. Like, tell us about that journey and and how you got there. Totally. I always joke, it's the classic hedge fund uh, audio erotica pipeline. You know, it's the path everyone's walked before. You know, I think I didn't start out with that plan. It's not like I joined Bridgewater as an investment researcher thinking this is where I'd end up, but it kind of came about through, you know, getting to know myself more and learning more about the world and find myself on a path that I was just much more excited about and making choices like that along the way. So definitely not some grand plan strategy to go Bridgewater to founding Dipsy, but certainly the best possible journey for me uh, that I could figure out at the time anyway. So yeah, I started my career in finance. I worked at Bridgewater, a kind of infamous hedge fund uh, in Westport, Connecticut, where I was an investment researcher. Um, I was an econ undergrad. I entered at a bank. I was very much on the path of working in finance and excited about that. And it's exciting, like making deals, playing markets, like that is definitely fun. But the longer I was at Bridgewater, I was there for about three years, the less I felt like it was my calling, you know, you have one life to live on earth. And so you have to take a balance of things. But I felt more and more as I was there longer and longer that I felt less um, excitement about staying there forever. And I think, you know, it's hard to feel like that probably anyway about your first job. I think I had a lot of also kind of FOMO of career as well. And there's something really nice about making a change, very compelling about that. And, you know, not being kind of and everything. And then kind of fortuitously, while I was at Bridgewater, I got involved in software engineering. Uh, Bridgewater was an early, had a lot of belief that one of their edges in markets would be developing better tools for research. And so they were doing a lot of software development, software engineering, working with Palantir and their teams to build better research tools. And I was on the team supporting the CEO directly, and he was really into that stuff. And so I was basically ended up doing a lot of product management and software development while at Bridgewater, kind of just luckily. And then I just sort of had more and more excitement about the building cool apps part of my job and less and less excited about the 
Australian housing market, uh, part of my job sort of <laughs> rode that intuition <laughs> um, away from Bridgewater. So, so really when I left, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but software engineering was obviously, you know, exploding then still big now, but it had this sense that if I could code, if I could build an app, if I could build a website, I could do a lot of things. I could still stay in finance. I could work at a fintech company. I could work at a nonprofit. I could start my own thing. Like it just sort of opened the aperture of my opportunities a lot. And that I could take a skill set that where I felt like I was getting narrower and narrower on the path that I could take at Bridgewater. It kind of blew that wide open for me. And it felt like a total um, reinvigoration of the opportunity in my life and a skill set that would work well for me anywhere. So in, I guess, 2015, a long time ago, I, um, I moved to San Francisco. I became a software engineer. I worked for two years at a fintech startup going from seed to series A. So the company go from like, you know, six people to 25 people and got exposed a lot more to startups and entrepreneurialism. And I was like, Hey, this guy can do it. Like, couldn't I? Um, and so in that, in that uh, powerful mindset and having like, you know, two years under my belt of actually being a software engineer and a tool set I could actually use, I could actually like build code and production and deploy and uh, met some really great people along the way there. And this sort of uh, combination of excitement and, and arrogance that one needs in order to start a company. Um, my co-founder and I got really excited about the idea that is now Dipsy. I'll pause there. Like that was a that's long awesome. Long. No, that's great. <laughs> a few questions. How did you learn to code? Did you teach yourself mm. or did you do any sort of like school or education? So while I was at Bridgewater, I was doing a lot of self-taught stuff. I was doing it on weekends. I was doing it at my job to an extent. And ultimately I had to face the fact that like I could not teach myself completely how to code. Like I think some people can, like all the research, all the information is out there. This is true, probably anything, like learning a language or whatever. Like the information is out there. It's free. You can get in there and do it yourself. Plenty of people I know have taught themselves how to code. I could not just go into the cave and do it myself. That was just not accessible to me. I needed a I needed deadlines, I needed a curriculum, I needed a schedule. So <laughs> I left Bridgewater to do App Academy, okay. uh, which is a coding boot camp. There are obviously a couple of them now. At the time that was like very new actually in the universe. Now they kind of are more, um, more well understood. And cause I just knew I needed someone to be like, give a test on Friday every week for 12 weeks in order to actually get through it. Which is, I think it's kind of similar to me like working out, like I need to sign up for a race. Or I'm not going to go to run. So I just needed to sort of hack my own brain there a little bit. I knew I wanted to learn how to code and I was trying to do it independently. And I was like, had to face the facts that was never really going to work for me. Um, although it certainly is possible for some. So I did as much as I could on my own and if it got some more and more confidence that it was a good investment in my future. I mean, the time you spend doing things like that is obviously huge, whether you're paying for a program or not, it's still like time you are making income. And so uh, it was a big, it was a big choice to make. I went as far as I could to be confident in that choice, but I knew I needed some help in order to actually get to the point where I could do it for a living. Yeah, that's awesome. So you teamed up with your co-founder, Gina. I'm oh. curious... Did the team form with Gina before the idea for Dipsy? Was it like, we're going to build something together or like, we're going to build this. Let's get together and do it. Oh, it was very much like, we're going to build this. Okay. Gina was my, was my friend, uh, is my friend. Uh, yeah. I was like, what's my friend, former co-founders. Um, but we were just kind of like buddies hanging out in San Francisco and like truly Dipsy began as like the late night conversation of like, wouldn't it be cool if there was content designed to turn women on that was awesome 
And we felt there was this really big gap between romance, which is an amazing industry, but kind of an outdated format, an outdated motif. You have to design, like just try to try to design from like first principles content design to turn people on. Would it be a book? Like maybe not. Maybe mm-hmm. other formats will work better there. And then like, you know, mainstream visual pornography, I can say pornography, right? Mainstream visual um, pornography, which was dominated by, you know, the male gaze made mostly by men for men, really hard to find ethical options. That's actually gotten a lot better in the last five years too. But if we sort of looked at what we thought worked just as consumers who wanted it, and also looked at the research, the psychology of female sex and desire, could we make something better? Mm. Um, And what would that look like? Mm. You know, and a lot of, the original intuitions and ideas we had while well, just kids, uh, 25 year olds, 36 year olds in San Francisco, we've kind of stuck to. Um, it's still largely audio. It's still very immersive. We've taken a very like quality premium feel approach. And uh, yeah, so it was really just like, wouldn't it be cool? If, and then that obviously grew to tons of research about the existing options, tons of research about psychology of sex and desire, what women consume, what women consume in erotica, what men consume, um, and trying to, to get as much possible information before we took the leap. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the cool things about building a product for yourself is like, you know, totally. you, you intuitively know if it's going to turn you on, I'm sure. Totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you mentioned like an ethical option. What, what do you mean by mm. an ethical, ethical options? Yeah. So a lot of pornography is not made with like clear standards of care for the workers involved. Mm. Not clear payment structure, not clear consent, not clear safety. Of course it can exist. Like, of course, for a sex work being done ethically, it's just really hard in the unregulated uh, depths of the internet to make sure that what you're consuming has that, have those standards in place. And I think with you know, with visual pornography, that becomes even more challenging because you do have sex workers. And then obviously like at the other extreme end, you might have like a book, which like hard to create. Ethically, I'm sure that you should you could. Mm. Um, and so we felt that like, especially for women we interviewed and talked to, one of the big concerns they had, not necessarily was that they disliked visual pornography, although that was also a very common reflection, like this didn't work for them, was that they felt afraid about how it was made and not trust in the institutions that were delivering it. There are more options for that. Even now there were then. But I think both those things are challenging. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's crazy that it's revolutionary to have porn created by women. But it really, like there's a few players in this space now, like the founder of Bellessar, she's a woman, you. <laughs> but it really for a really long time was like a really male-dominated industry from like a creation and like a founding point of view. Was there anything that was like, I don't know, scary or daunting about entering this space that's like kind of a taboo, traditionally seedy space? Yeah, I mean, I don't think what we do, I wouldn't call what Dipsy does pornography. Again, I think it's hard to define. Mm. Um, I would say we create erotica. I think one thing that can sort of like maybe help you put your (laughs) on that is like when we started Dipsy, I remember it's like an original pitch deck the number one trending search term on Pornhub that year was porn for women. Hmm. And like men don't go to Pornhub and search porn for men. Like it is, there's this underlying sort of colloquial understanding that like what's on there is for men. Yeah. Um, And what porn is, is for men. And what we're creating, I think there's a lot more generally than that. And the way that our listeners talk about it is how it's like you change their life, change the relationship with themselves, change the relationship with their partner. 
supports intimacy and confidence and joy. And I think that porn is a very like reductive definition of, mm. of what we offer. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had concerns about entering this taboo space um, after coming from something as uh, prestigious, I guess, prestigious as Bridgewater. There's tons of risks that you take as a founder. I mean, billion, I mean, you're taking financial risk. You're, there's opportunity cost, things you could do otherwise. You're taking risks on your, your co-founder or your teammates. You're making big, big leaps of faith around the people around you. I'm so lucked out with Gina, just like insane could ever, like it's, I got here, like your co-founder as well, but we were so lucky. We didn't know nearly enough about each other to have made that leap with confidence and it worked out so beautifully and wonderfully and made the journey so much more fun and also uh, possible. But yeah, I think the risk to my reputation was certainly one of them. And I think that all I could do was have confidence in what we were doing was good for the world. Like I believe that every choice we make, I think reflects that. Mm-hmm. Like I stand behind every every piece of content. I mean, it might be like personally for me, but I think it's made well and it's something for someone that I think is good for them. Yeah. And we've created like opportunity and for people who help create the content with us um, and huge impact on the lives of women that who, who listen. So I think if I have confidence in that, I can, you know, take the uh, uncomfortable stairs or whatever. And honestly, I would love to hear what you think about your journey at Sunroom too, but my overwhelming experience personally is not that people are judgmental, is that people are interested, they're curious, mm-hmm. um, like, oh my God, it makes so much sense. You know, I think it's mostly the opposite thing. And it certainly uh, gets a lot more follow-up questions than I work in finance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, a lot of what you're saying resonates. I, for a split second, when we were founding Sunroom, I had the sort of consideration of like, is this a risk to my reputation because of yeah. this space we were straddling, I suppose. But I felt so strongly and so passionately about why it was important and the people we were going to help that it ultimately didn't matter. And the risk was like worth taking. I want to get into more of like the the early stages of Dipsy. So you yeah. raised through the the course of of Dipsy five and a half million dollars. And so when did you first raise money? Like how much of the original, how much of the initial ideation and like validation and all the research you talked about happened before the fundraise or or after? So we raised five and a half million before we launched, which is a nice mm. Yes, before we launched, um, we did some things to make that happen. I'm happy to talk about that. We've raised 13 million today. Okay. Um, so we've had rounds since then. But the first five and a half, we had a really clear strategy about what we wanted to do, what proof points we wanted to have for that fundraise. And we tried to keep ourselves to like a timeline. I don't think that any, to an extent, any founder strategy is perfectly repeatable because your company's different, your investors are different, and the market changes. I don't know if raising a seed round today versus in 2018 when we raised is different. That said, I think there are some principles there that apply. We knew personally, just from the two of us, we didn't want to go like more than a year without salary. That's like a good thing. That, what, can we, what can we actually afford to do? What makes this like hard, but like sustainable for us. And let's be honest that up front. If you can't be honest with your co-founder about that financial decision, like you should have talked about being together because it's only going to get harder from there. Like, what can we really stomach here? Personally, you have to like, you know, show each other everything. We have to be clear on like what the timelines are that you're holding each other to. Yeah. And we're like, okay, we know personally, before we raise money, we want to have some stuff proven out. 
like before we spend our lives doing this, what would we want to know? Mm. Um, and those things probably align pretty closely what an investor wants to hear. So we spent a lot of time on building what we thought was like the truly minimalist viable product um, that we could, which was we created six pieces of content, six short, sexy audio stories. I think four are still live in the app. My sunset too. It was a first attempt, you know, we learned. And we sent that, we sent on a website. We invested in the brand really early on. I know you're also a real big brand, big brand hero too. But I think especially in spaces that are more taboo, the brand really helped people understand the mission, the product, what we were going for. It made it much more accessible than like throwing them to like a subreddit or whatever. So we invested in the brand. We had like a logo mark and a color scheme. We had a pretty like reasonable website, which is like six audio stories and two and survey. Like what's your go-to for erotica? If you have one, how much would you spend money on your overall sexual well-being? Questions that help us understand not only did this little piece of these six stories that we make work for you, but also was something like this work? Was something like this thing you pay for? Something that you think about your sexual being as part of your overall well-being is important to you as women. And in that like relatively straightforward thing, we we financed the first six stories ourselves. They were like, you know, our friends acted them. We wrote them. I wrote three, Gina wrote the other three. We proved out a lot of things. First of all, we proved out that Gina and I could work together and make audio content. It was pretty good. Like it got a lot better, but I think actually it was a way to do something like a real project for somebody. Even picking a company name is hard. Yeah. Like, all those things you do in the first three to six months it's like you have very little yardsticks besides each other's opinions, right? And I think it's proven yet. There's no customers yet. They had to just work it out with each other. So all those things were great proof points for each other that like this was like going to work. It felt like that very quickly early on. And that we can make something that was pretty good. That we thought was pretty good. We can get it better, but it was, we, we saw that it had impacts. And we could share it with our friends and that they would share it with other people. So we sent that to like 500 people and we had like, 10,000 visitors in our first month of that site. And so we knew that, okay, now we had a couple of proof points that worked well with investors. But okay, we can do it. Granted, our backgrounds are in finance and brand strategy, but like, look, we did something. You can see it. That's yeah. helpful. <laughs> Two, women want this. We had that both through people actually listening to it and through the survey. I mean, like, I would spend on this. This makes sense to me, whatever. And that it was shareable. There's a lot of concern early on in this space that even if people did like it, they would never talk about it being possible to grow. Mm. There'd be no, there would be no, the people would like be embarrassed that they had listened to it. They wouldn't tell their friends. We could prove out a lot of kind of the biggest concerns early on um, with investors. And that worked. So basically we raised on just that one little website, we basically raised one and a half million. And we were kind of fundraising. As soon as we launched the website, we started kind of fundraising. And then we kind of like stopped. And then we said the next like six months building the app. Uh, so I was just hands on keys fighting, trying to build the app. We wanted to launch in the first year because we wanted to start monetizing. And once we had a beta version of the product built, not only just, and we started making stores concurrently. So we hired an audio producer. I was developing, I was writing, writing code and we were building the library concurrently with the app. And that was in like beta, like in test flight. And we raised 4 million on that basically before it was launched. So we had proven out not only can we make the content, we can make the app, we can do it really quickly, we're competent. And so it was really proving out a lot of like our ability reputation and also something people to interact with and then like all the, you know, virality and the usage people actually listening and that kind of stuff too. So I guess that to pull it back to like some kind of reasonable principles or strategy there, I think there are some things you can prove out really quickly, both with each other, if you have a co-founder or with yourself. Those things are probably going to highly correlate to what investors want to see. And then think about what are the big things are in your space, the questions you're going to ask. For us, there were big questions around whether we could actually execute given our backgrounds that were not related to erotica 
And is there a growth story here? Is there actually a demand? And we could put that out pretty quickly, yeah. um, which ended up being the whole thing we raised off of basically. We're taking a quick break from the episode and we'll be right back, but we love hearing from our listeners. If you have any burning questions for us, please hit us up on Instagram at our Try Babies, the podcast Instagram page. You can also join us in our Facebook group. Let's get back to the app. So I actually used your alpha site. I hosted a listening party in my apartment in Brooklyn, yes, which is probably not, you know, the intended environment to listen to, to Dipsy Audio, but there were 20 people or 15 people like lounging about in my apartment. We were listening yep. to the stories and it was incredible. Like, I think we knew in that moment we were like, oh damn, because we're all sitting there like, you know, somewhat turned on in this like group <laughs> setting being like, okay, this is kind of hot. Totally. <laughs> Um, but totally. I remember the brand and I remember the, yeah, the little like lineup of your your series of, of six. It sounds like you did things in the right way. Like you did just enough to figure out if you guys could work together and answer these investor questions. So raising the extra couple of million right before you launched, are there any learnings from that? So a lot of our listeners are really interested in fundraising, but don't have a lot of insight and experience. And it is kind of like a black box in a way. So whatever, like other learnings you're you're open to sharing about that process and working with investors? I mean, I don't think you have to raise venture capital. I like obviously did it. And I think when people told me that when I was raising venture capital, I was like, well, fine, but like, I would love to have $5 million. So shut up. Like I, I thought if I could try to do it, I should go for it. And I think for us, the company ended up being, it was like critical that we raised that then. Because it actually, from the process of proving out those things that I described to actually developing like a good monetization strategy, like a good paid growth. But those things were hard. We didn't know how to do those things. It took a while. It didn't like all of a sudden go viral. Some products have that experience that they just like turn it on and like the money machine is printing. Like we had to iterate on a lot of things. We had to learn a lot about how to make content better, how to monetize better, how to build a better. Like, we had to learn a lot once we launched. So even we had proven some stuff out, we were nowhere near like off the company we are today. And we needed that money. We needed that time to figure it out. So it ended up being, you know, hindsight, obviously 2020, but ended up being like the best possible thing for us because that capital ended up being critical for our survival while we figured those things out. Yeah, totally. How long would you say you were in like iterating mode for? I mean, you obviously still are. It never sort of ends, but like the yeah. critical learning period. Okay. I think there was like in the first three to six months, there was like massive learnings on an actual growth strategy besides tell my friends and they tell their friends, which Sephora companies is enough. For some cases, that's totally fine. Like if you're a company like Instagram, like your product's better when your friends are on it. So it's like built in morality. If you're a product like us, my friends using Dipsy doesn't improve my experience at all. Like I might tell my friends as I like them, but it's not like a massive viral growth strategy. Like it won't drive the company forward. So figure out how to like run Facebook ads or like have an Instagram. Those things just took time for us to figure it out. So the first three to six months, we had like massive learning on growth strategy and monetization, like how to frame the subscription, what's the right pricing, what's the right free trial. Like there was no way for us to know without us trying to do it. And there was no real examples for us to follow in our space because there really wasn't anyone else in our space. There really isn't. So we had to just figure that out. Three to six months was huge. Then it was like, okay, we basically had by, you know, six to 12 months in say like clear product market fit. And then it was, and then the second like big crash of learning or whatever 
collision, that's probably a more positive word, opportunity of learning was that without enough content, right? Because we make all of our own content and we sell a subscription. Without enough content, people aren't going to retain. They're not going to renew. Mm-hmm. And what feels like a lot of content to us isn't a lot of content to a user who's like maybe in our 100 stories, like a third of them are queer. And of those 30 queer stories, like 10 of them are British accent. And now we've paid for annual subscription. And you're like, that's not nearly enough stuff. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so yeah. kind of the segmentation is very, is like specific. We wanted to have a broad range of segments, but just be an app for queer people or straight people or whatever. And so we wanted breadth, but it was really hard to provide depth. And that just meant that our retention was like really weak in the beginning. And the only way to get over that hump was to just make more stuff and make more stuff, make more stuff, which is also where having that financing came in, came in handy mm-hmm. because you could prove out, hey, like if we concentrate on a given segment and we make a lot more stuff for them, we can move their attention lever. And that was a big part of our Series A fundraise was us saying, yeah, okay. We all agree that like PMF is there, the primary fit is there. People definitely want to pay for this. We're unique in the space. Their attention is bad, but like, here's why we can prove to you how this money is going to change that story completely. And so that was kind of like second massive round of uh, learning after the first bit of just trying to get people to have the funnel working. Yeah. We faced the same issue at Sunroom where retention is affected by the amount of content our creators produce. Yes, But exactly. we don't quite have the same control over that lever because we we do to a degree encouraging our creators in various ways to create more content, but we can't create yep. it directly ourselves. Yep. Uh, so it's an added sort of like layer of challenge there. Um, yeah. On the team side, like who were your first hires and how did you think about those people? Probably like diehard believers in the mission. That's probably true of all your hires to an extent, especially in a more taboo space or whatever. It's because it's hard to be at a startup and like their job changes every three months. And like, you really want to give them the best possible experience. I think we've done our best possible. We've done our best. By, I've tried my best to make this a good place to work. But like, there is volatility. There's instability. And your job is not going to be the same as if like you joined as like a PM at Google and you have a really clear 15-year path ahead of you, which is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Which can be thrilling and a growth opportunity, but also can be kind of challenging. So I think you want people who are like really mission aligned, kind of a boring thing to say, but probably pretty crucial if they're going to have the interest working for you and the resilience, essentially the interest to get through kind of the more challenging times. I think there's a level of uh, adaptability is required in that as well. Not just like they believe in the mission, but like they're interested in being more than just the thing they are uh, when they join. Mm. With, with roles, like what specific roles did you hire first? We hired, our first employee was an audio producer. Okay. Which makes sense. Um, our second employee was a like more junior software engineer to help me out doing all the coding then. I think then we hired like head of growth because we just didn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. I had never had to run, I never had a consumer product like at all. I had no idea like how to run a Facebook ad or whatever, meta ad, what SEO was. Like, I, I didn't know any of that stuff. So someone there um, who had, been at a few other startups and he knew what was going on. Mel, she rocks on Guard Dipsy, but um, she does sometimes get like lifeline phone calls for me. <laughs> um, and uh, she rocks, she's the best. And really built a growth strategy that taught me how to do it, basically, just huge. And so it was kind of both combination of like the things that have to be done. Like I needed support to build the app. She needed support to make more content. That's how it kind of was split up early on. And then like, we definitely need to grow the company and we don't fucking know how to do it. Um, so that kind of drove the original set of hires is there. We kind of filled in as, as gaps uh, emerged. Yeah. At what, up until what point were you coding still? 
and building the product. Maybe you still are. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I haven't. I actually did a PR six months ago, but it was pretty lame. I was like, I need a promo code. Um, I don't know. I was coding like 80% of my time, maybe the first two years. And then it kind of like gradually dropped off and probably hit, you know, between zero and 5% two years ago. I mean, it's been six years since we literally started, five years wow. since we launched. I know. That's a long time. Uh, crazy. Um, even though I'm not coding, I, I mean, I work on the product all the time. Uh, so I have to do. And I do think because I know the original infrastructure, it makes me like much more powerful um, at managing the product. Yeah. And I can go through and like answer my own questions, stuff like that on the code. So I don't code anymore, but I could, yeah. uh, but I don't. I don't. It's not the highest value in my time for the company, unfortunately. So one of the themes of this podcast is just being like really raw and really like vulnerable about what, what you're going through. So I'm kind of curious to hear about the most challenging period that you've gone through with Dipsy, if you're open to sharing. Yeah. The most challenging things that Dipsy have in my mind, always been fundraising. Because it's not that we have had, look at like the track record. I think it's very easy to be like, oh my God, they've raised $13 million. Like they raised five, almost five, four. It's just, and this is true of any company you see that you have those numbers up, is like everyone's story looks good from the outside, essentially. And some of those fundraisers were just kind of brutal. It's a brutal process. No one starts a company to fundraise. Yeah. Like that's not like when you imagine... <laughs> Your life as a CEO, you're like, and then I'm calling this guy for money. Like, it's just not what you want to do. And it is so critical. Like, you need it. Actually, we're profitable now, so we don't need it anymore. But thank you. Uh, and it just feels like it's like necessarily lonely. Having a co-founder made it less painful, but it is still lonely because you team people on the team can't really help you. It doesn't really help them for them to be exposed to it. Like it doesn't really, there's something about it that's like inherently insulating. You have to be insulated because like you don't need the random vol of a good phone call and a bad phone call. And okay, this term versus that term is not helpful for someone who's trying to like ship a feature or great audio content today. Totally. Um, and so, and we just had like, I think kind of like the normal bullshit I think that happens, which is like, for every round you see, there's like some check that didn't pull through or some like term that you had to compromise on and like some horrible phone call with your board. You know what I mean, like we we didn't have, not all those happened to us, but you know what I mean? Like I think there is like, those have all been the times where it feels so out of your hands. Whereas yeah. like, at least when you mess things up on the product side, you're just like, you only have yourself to blame. And sometimes, especially with fundraising, you're kind of at the whims of other people or market forces, which I think is the worst part. That's probably like pretty negative. I think it kind of sounds like a very privileged dance. I know we've raised so much money and many companies can't raise money at all. But a lot of that was not was not done without fighting for it, I guess. Yeah, it's a it's a grind. I think some of my <laughs> most challenging periods with some of some of Sunroom Sunraises were easy. Some of them have been like fucking hard. What's yeah. the what's the most number of pitches you've had to do to get a round done? I know I haven't counted. You have to preserve. Mm. You have to preserve your sanity somehow. Lucy. Yeah, you're <laughs> <laughs> like being like, oh, another one. <laughs> Tally. It's horrible. I've just um, I've just seen it done in our space before, where people are like, you know, I had to get a hundred no's to get one yes. <laughs> no, I don't think we've generally done a hundred no's. I, but I think like one thing about having like a very specific company in a very like taboo space is like there's not a hundred people. I'm, you know what I mean? It's like there's to an extent. It's like 
in a way, it's kind of freeing. Like people won't invest or can't invest or are interested in investing regardless of the numbers. It's not like I'm like a B2B email optimization tool where I literally could p- mm. pitch every single consumer company or whatever, or every single venture capitalist in San Francisco. Like there's an extent of, I know, I know who those people are and that they're kind of self-selecting. But I do think like, it's not necessarily the number of no's. It's just like the no's you don't expect. People you thought, are going to come through. Like, I don't know if like the number is as bad as like the ones that you get. The checks thought were done. Checks not were in your pocket. You already spent them in your mind um, <laughs> and they never hit the bank account. Um, so I think that is, oh, there's like real consequences to that. There's like things you can't do, people you can't keep or whatever. I think that the, the consequences of those fundraisers are obviously like, you're just bearing that in a very, in a very lonely way. Whereas like, I mean, we had other things happen to us that probably would have been like answers that you might have guessed that we were pulled in the play store for six months because we were deemed to be pornography. It's ridiculous. And we had to like fight that good overture, which we did. But like my worst day at Dipsy wasn't that. That was kind of like invigorating. Like it was proof that like we should exist and it felt like righteous and it felt like we're doing everything we can. It was out of our, it was like we were pulled up from the play store and it was like totally unfair, but we're like, all right, let's, we can activate against this and we mm-hmm. can pull together Everyone team get involved and we like mailed physical letters to people at Google trying to get them to like hear our case. And like, we just did like anything we could to get a reverse, which we did. And that felt like, while at the pit in my stomach, the moment we were pulled was so horrible. There was like activation against it. And it felt like I was, I was proud of myself to be in the situation that that happened to me kind of, you know, and that I could like try to change that policy for other, for us, for other companies. And fundraising, I think feels like less that way. It's just like mine's going to you or somebody else. There's no like right or wrong. It's just like a, it's a relative. Yeah. Factory. With the Play Store, do you know what ended up getting them to republish your app? Yeah. I mean, every institution we have to interact with, the, the rules are purposefully unclear and gray so that they can exercise discretion. And honestly, that makes a lot of sense. If I were them, I want to exercise discretion too. I'd be like, yeah, it's fine. Letter of the law, you're allowed here. But like, we all know you're not. You know, like, I think that like, it's better that people exercise discretion, but that means those are not clear rules for any company that's operating the edge of that policy. And also what these companies do is they purposefully like obscure who is making the decisions for the protection of those individuals. Again, I understand why it is annoying for me. So what ended up happening with Google is we literally like mailed, but we tried to figure out like on LinkedIn and like mapping, like who may have been someone who could help us reverse the decision finally got in front of someone, I think literally physically mailing them a letter and they brought us in. And then we had like a presentation that we did that literally was like, this is like testimonials of our users. This is how all of our content is made and what it is. These are other, I think the thing that really was like the nail in the coffin that made them feel like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed to be behind a decision is like other apps on the Play Store that were there and were allowed to exist. They were just like, obviously worse. You know what I mean? That were like, clearly like, just like not about sexual health and wellness. Like they were just a hundred percent icky. And I think just being like, okay, obviously whatever policy we're applying here, we're applying wrongly. And we maybe can't change the policy. We can change this position for you. And then also that opened the door for a lot of other, I think, companies that um, that entered after us essentially and other similar spaces. But yeah, I think it was a combination of like us having a truly great product, having like real testimony from women who've been like, this changed my life. And then I think also like the dichotomy of what was being allowed that was so much more obviously not sex positive and obviously not for women. Yeah. Uh, well, on behalf of uh, our industry, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank but- you. I try my best. I literally like drove to like 
we like drove to Palo Alto. We like went in and like went to the offices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, It was pre pre COVID. And my co-founder and I accidentally both wore black turtlenecks. We're like, damn it, we're really giving Elizabeth Holmes. Um, but we we didn't really coordinate it, and also neither person have worn this outfit, so they looked past that and uh, let us back on the Play Store. That's amazing. I mean, I've definitely texted you before to ask you about App Store policies when we've had our own issues, like getting yep. certain builds through. So it's all, you guys are profitable. Congrats! That is Woo. huge. Yeah, it's awesome. Like when you're <laughs> when you're creating a startup, like that is a monumental milestone to to reach. So yeah. well done. What is Thank your you. um yeah, what's your vision for Dipsy from from here on out? I think the core of what we're doing, which is like creating content design to allow women to like tap into their own sexuality and live more like joyous, confident, pleasurable lives. And I think we're also pretty stuck on audio. I think the audio thing like really works. We do some other stuff in the app, some written content, but the audio feels like so impactful and so good for the use case and something we're really good at. What I'm really excited about, we're kind of playing around with right now is a lot more like fantasy content, like they and werewolves and vampires. That's really exciting. We're just kind of like, we started out so clearly and it was a great, it was a great stance. I think it has also a lot of strength to it in wanting to be like aspirational reality, which is awesome. And we have t- most of our content is still in this like aspirational, like reality, like experiences that could happen to you. And now we're kind of playing around with just like pure fantasy. And it's kind of a fun place to play in, um, especially I think because like it's, it's just it's just fun and fiction is great. And like women are excited about it and really excited about trying to launch in more languages. It's a lot more just kind of scaling what we're doing and like broadening the scope of the content that we make. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Like there's so much more we could do. I feel like we're constantly trying to decide what, how to, what stuff not to do is the hardest stuff. Uh, a lot of stuff we want to do. That's awesome. So to wrap up, we have a tradition where we ask a, a spicy question. Um, How spicy? <laughs> uh, you, you don't have to answer this one. I can pick another one. Okay. <laughs> but what is like a, a fantasy or a kink of yours that has not been brought to life in a, a Dipsy audio before? So I said this before, we're getting more into fantasy and we're kind of like drifting into it. I think it's like exciting about fantasy when it's not reality is you can like play with things that like are not cool in reality. So I think like, and I'm also going deep on book talk stuff right now of like micro tropes and tropes or whatever and trying to like trope stack these things, which is really fun. And I read a ton of fantasy, which is also like partially why I'm excited about it. And I feel like there's certain kinds of characters you get away with in fantasy that you just cannot do in real life. I think a classic one is like the morally gray kind of guy who would like kill anyone who touches you kind of thing. I think that's interesting. In real life, that's not interesting at all. That's super not cool. <laughs> like you can't be writing sexy stories about murderers, but like they're like dark prince, like hell yeah. So I think that we're kind of getting more into that and fantasy is allowing us to kind of like loosen some of the rules that we have. Or like, well, we're doing scenes that again, like would not work at all in real life. Like as you see in this in fantasy a lot, which is like, someone is like wounded in battle and you're like tending them that be- tending to them that becomes sexy. Like again, not hot in your apartment in Brooklyn, <laughs> like would not be a reasonable concept, but it's really fun. It's like in a cave and like, you've been like stolen back to being kidnapped by a witch or whatever. So I think uh, those are not my best plot points ideas ever. But I think that fantasy is allowing us to like play with these kind of like escalated themes that like the theme of like jealousy or, or care or possession is sexy. And we play with that in like these stories are not fantasy, but when we become like, when we pull it into this like escalated fantasy realm, we can kind of like blow those tropes out a lot harder. And that's really fun. 
That's awesome. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Faye, where can our listeners listen to Dipsy and like follow Dipsy? So we are on uh, TikTok and Instagram. You see me on there uh, trying to make social content support me in my endeavors. Okay, I'm just learning. <laughs> I occasionally make good stuff, but a lot of it isn't. Luckily, we have a professional <laughs> social for us. Obviously, Instagram, TikTok. We are available on the App Store and the Play Store. I would highly recommend finding us there. If you want to get 30 days free, I have a promo code for you. But you get seven days free in the app. But 30 days free, try babies, P-R-Y-B-A-B-I-E-S. You can download, you can use that on dipsystories.com. So D-I-P-S-E-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S.com slash try babies. Or just go there, click subscribe and enter the promo code try babies. 30 days free. Enjoy it on me. Um, so you can take a listen to all that content if I would you like. And maybe our new face stuff will be launching soon. You can enjoy that too. Hey, thank you so much. <laughs> no worries. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. A quick ask if you enjoyed listening, it would mean the world if you could jump on Spotify or Apple and review the podcast. Five stars only, please. We need to build that army so we can read what you loved and what you want to hear more of. We're so grateful to have such an incredible community of empowered, motivated and confident women supporting each other here to go after their dreams. That's what we've needed most throughout our journey. You can subscribe so you don't miss our episodes or head over to our Try Babies podcast Facebook group and Try Babies Insta where we can connect with you more and ask us questions that you want answered in the show. See you on the next episode of Try Babies.